Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté, here with Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of many books, including his latest, The Management of Savagery. We are talking now about Syria, a number of new developments, the killing, Max, of the ISIS leader al-Baghdadi in Idlib, uh, coupled with Trump's announcement of basically reversing this troop withdrawal that he had said would happen, and announcing that the U.S. will, quote, defend uh, Syria's oil, oil reserves uh, in northern Syria. Let's start with Baghdadi. So he is killed in Idlib, uh, which has been described as the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. Uh, that is according to Brett McGurk, the former special U.S. envoy to the coalition fighting ISIS. And we have been told all along that, uh, that um, ISIS and the al-Qaeda groups that control Idlib were supposed to be enemies, but then Baghdadi ends up living there. What is your assessment of the fact that the significance of the fact that Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, was living in Idlib? I mean, to many people, this might not seem that significant. But if you've been following the way that the um, Syrian opposition has been marketed to the U.S. public and, and throughout the West, especially by a coterie of um, regime change propagandists and think tankers and by U.S. officials, it really is because we've been constantly told by this kind of think tank cabal that Idlib was home to um, a moderate opposition or an opposition that was Islamist but was not jihadist and that which had and which had to be supported as a tool against the Syrian government in Damascus. It, so it had to be protected. Tom Friedman, who's you know not the brightest bulb, uh, did refer explicitly to Idlib as the home of a moderate opposition. But then you have people like Charles Lister, whose job was to kind of vet the moderate rebels and be in touch with them constantly and tell the uh, US government and British government who's okay to send arms to, who's been nested at various Gulf-funded think tanks from the you know, Brookings Doha Center to now uh, the Middle East Institute. You know, he, would, he would refer to the main group that's in control in Idlib, Hayat Tahrir al-Shem, as kind of between al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood and very kind of wise and um, practical. And you know, he, he, even, he even tweeted um, an, a, basically what appeared to be an appeal for removing them from the State Department terror list um, to remove them from sanctions. And you know, Hayat Tahrir al-Shem is a rebranding of Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the original local al-Qaeda affiliate um, from which ISIS emerged. Um, and its leader, Mohammed al-Julani, was a you know, former comrade of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the ISIS self-proclaimed caliph. So you know, from my point of view, Idlib was controlled by some of the most ferocious, extremist Salafi jihadi groups in the world, and they were just a few hundred kilometers from the Syrian capital, which you know raises the question for Americans, how would you like to have Al-Qaeda in your backyard? If you lived in Philadelphia, how would you like to have them controlling Wilmington? That's what Syria faces, and they've been calling on their Russian military allies to help them um, defeat what is 
what Brett McGurk, as you said, accurately described as the largest Al-Qaeda affiliate since 9-11 in the northwestern Idlib province in Syria. And every time, basically, there were, they, they were pressured not to do this offensive. A series of ceasefires took place. The ceasefires were broken. And last year, they began making their advances. And this year, they've reached as far as Khan Sheikhoun, um, pretty deep into Idlib. And at each point, the U.S. has protested. Nikki Haley, when she was U.N. ambassador, filed a formal protest. You know, they should leave Idlib alone. Um, Donald Trump has even condemned the offensive in Idlib. From the point of view of the U.S., Idlib uh, needed to be protected for humanitarian reasons. You know, the U.S. just cares about, you know, the civilians in Idlib, which is, you know, it's a legitimate concern. Um, civilians have suffered under this offensive. And then, you know, from the EU perspective, Idlib needs to be protected because they don't want people who have gone there as foreign fighters, the worst, most dangerous fanatics from their societies coming home and having to be dealt with by their uh, criminal justice system. Um, they basically want to keep it as this human warehouse for um, foreign jihadist fighters. And so that convergence of interests has put pressure on the Syrian and Russian government to prevent them from carrying out an offensive, which any other country would have done. Um, and now the narrative has completely exploded about Idlib being home to moder a moderate opposition or about there really being no need for Syria to go in because ISIS fighters, as they were defeated in Raqqa, as they were defeated in what was their so-called caliphate in northeastern Syria, began filtering back into Idlib. Um, to join their ideological brothers and sisters in arms. And they've maintained what even Western media has referred to for the past year or so as sleeper cells. It, this was acknowledged, their presence was acknowledged in Western media in bits and pieces as sleeper cells. And now the you know most wanted figure among ISIS, um, one of the most bloodstained individuals on the planet was killed in a US operation Obviously, you know, for Donald Trump to bandy around in his re-election campaign, he just released a campaign commercial last night, a re-election commercial declaring that he killed Baghdadi. Um, but, you know, to me, the story that's been swept under the rug is how Idlib has become home to ISIS as well as the entire so-called moderate opposition and the rebranding of Al-Qaeda. Um, and, you know, the reaction by all that coterie of think tank experts and regime change propagandists that we're so familiar with on Twitter and elsewhere has been just, it, it's honestly been hilarious. Uh, they're expressing shock that Baghdadi could have been in Idlib. Oh, because Al Qaeda, they kill ISIS. They, they hate ISIS. It's like, yeah, the, uh, you know, the council of conservative citizens hates the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, the, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just so ridiculous. What they're doing is trying to sweep their own record under the rug because their whole narrative has been completely exposed as fraudulent. And again, you know, this coincides with something we spoke about previously on Pushback. You're, you, had a you had an article at the Gray Zone recently uh, pointing out uh, the findings of a Turkish study that 21 of the 28 uh, armed militias that the Turkish army has been using in northern Syria to commit atrocities against Kurds were previously backed by the U.S. either through uh, direct arms or, or training or other tacit support. You know, talking about Idlib, it's interesting. When I look at the 
retrospectives now on uh, Baghdadi and t the discussions, even in leftist media, talking about his rise and how he was able, how, how ISIS was, was able to grow. For good reason, there is a lot of talk about the Iraq War, which of course, you know, spawned ISIS. And there's, there's, it's good to focus on that. But I'm struck by, in the discussion, there's, al there's almost a complete absence of what you're talking about, which is basically uh, Baghdadi was able to go to an Al-Qaeda safe haven in Syria that pretty much exists because of the U.S.-backed and Turkish-backed and Gulf state-backed proxy war that's been going on that's been going on in the country for many years now. Yeah, I mean it's just so obvious, and you you can't speak about it. So if you don't look to you know alternative media sources or or Middle Eastern you know Arab media, um, you can't understand why ISIS existed in the first place or how Al Qaeda wound up taking Idlib. Um, but, you know, I write about this extensively in my book. It's because of the U.S. arm and equip program known as Operation Timbor Sycamore, coordinated with the Turkish government through the U.S. and for the through the Incirlik Air Base in Turkey, uh, funded by countries like Qatar, um, also Saudi Arabia, but primarily Qatar and Turkey and the European governments, um, the U.K. and France that ISIS was able to exist. And this was predicted by this Defense Intelligence Agency uh, assessment that we've talked about before, uh, that was brought to light by the Levantine Report and researcher Brad Hoff. It was basically secret for years. It was revealed in 2015. And the DIA warned that a Salafist principality would develop in northeastern Syria if uh, US allies continued to pump weapons and, tr and uh, supplies into the so-called rebels. Now, who were the rebels? They, we were told they were the free Syrian army and that they're moderate rebels and that they were there to actually help us not only fight Assad and take out the evildoer and official designated enemy in Damascus, but to also fight ISIS. But when we saw, and I write about this episode in my book, it's like, it's so hard to find documentation on this in English language media but I even managed to find it in a few pro-opposition websites, how Raqqa was taken. Raqqa became the capital of the so-called ISIS caliphate in northeastern Syria. It was taken through a partnership between Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, which emerged out of Iraq, thanks to the US occupation of Iraq, and the FSA, the Free Syrian Army that was being armed and backed by the CIA and US allies. And you know, after Raqqa was taken, half of the FSA fighters joined, proceeded to join al-Nusra, and the other half left and went to fight Assad. Baghdadi himself had been using Nusra as a Trojan horse, and he declared the caliphate and the birth of ISIS uh, soon after. And the so-called revolutionary activists who came into Raqqa to try to set up their local community councils were all basically kidnapped and killed or um, exiled. So. Then you have these episodes like uh, the taking of Meneg Air Base. Um, I think it was in 2014. I also write about this in my book, The Management of Savagery, where uh, Jamal Al-Qaeda, who was a main recipient of US training and arms through the Free Syrian Army, was trying to take an air base from the actual Syrian army and was failing to do so. His men kind of lacked motivation. And along comes, uh, Omar al-Shashani, a uh, 
Chechen, or I, no, a fighter from Dagestan who had received training from the CIA in the past, um, I guess, to kind of weaken Russia. And he marches in with his band of ISIS foreign fighters and fanatics, and they take the uh, they take the base together. And Al-Qaeda and Shoshani basically hold a press conference. It looks like, you know, the Nationals winning the World Series uh, last night, except it's ISIS and the Free Syrian Army. And Al-Qaeda is a guy um, who had been photographed with U.S. officials, um, including the fake U.S. ambassador for many years, uh, just weeks prior. So this, the cooperation between ISIS and the so-called moderate opposition had always been ongoing, so it should be no shock that ISIS is now, ISIS figures are now discovered in this um, province that's completely under the control of the rebranded local Al-Qaeda affiliate, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. We just have to look at the whole history of how this played out. Now, finally, how was Idlib taken? It was taken partly because the U.S. was sending in so many heavy weapons, specifically the BGM tow missile, anti-tank missiles into the Syrian opposition. Um, you know, Ben Norton and I have reported at the Gray Zone on the use of those tow missiles in Idlib by HTS, rebranded Al-Qaeda fighters. But they managed to make this advance into Idlib to take Idlib city, um, ethnically cleansed all the religious minorities there, placed the whole area under vicious theocratic rule, banned music, banned public singing, banned for a, a, a long period, women from even wearing colorful hijab. And this terrified the Syrian government because Idlib is not far from the Alawite heartland. And of course, these Salafi jihadi elements view Alawites as kafir, as non-Muslim, basically people who should be eliminated. And this is what triggered the helped trigger the Russian intervention in 2015, um, this episode. It had just gone way too far. And where were the Western governments to condemn Qatar and the Gulf allies for supporting Al-Qaeda's Al takeover? Uh, where They were nowhere. They were silent. And in, they've continued since that time to support the preservation of Idlib as a haven for Al-Qaeda uh, against the wishes of the Syrian government and their Russian allies. And now we see the consequences of that. They provided a haven for the self-styled caliph of ISIS, one of the most blood-stained individuals on earth. And to quote Robert F. Worth of the New York Times, he wrote a piece called Aleppo After the Fall for New York Times Magazine in the spring of 2017. To quote him, that Russian intervention prevented, quote, sectarian mass murder in Latakia, that um, Alawite heartline heartland that was under threat from U.S.-backed rebels. Quickly, Max, uh, I want to have a quick follow-up, and then I want to ask you about the oil fields. You mentioned the fake U.S. ambassador to Syria. Are you referring to Robert Ford? Absolutely. And why is he fake? Well, the U.S. has no embassy in Syria. He, and he certainly was not a diplomat. He was essentially acting as a destroyer of Syria. His goal was to help coordinate arms to the so-called moderate opposition. Now he's back here in Washington. I think he's at the Gulf-funded Middle East Institute. You know, he uh, got his golden parachute there from some of the same states that were uh, helping to destroy Syria and trying to uh, turn it into this theocracy um, to destabilize it and create another Libya. And it was so amazing when I went to Syria recently and got to be in Damascus. I went out to a restaurant on my 
first night in Damascus, and the waiter told me um, that I looked like the uh, I looked like Robert Ford, which is kind of funny. I you know did a little side by side, and I said, "So Robert Ford used to come here." And he said, yeah, he was here every night. He loved our restaurant. And I thought, you know, how ironic and actually how disgusting that you could go enjoy Damascus, enjoy this beautiful city and its people, and then turn around and coordinate shipments of arms to people who wanted to destroy it and slaughter all of the religious minorities who have called it home for thousands of years. And that's Robert Ford. If there's been no reckoning, there's been no accountability for him. We do have a piece at the Gray Zone about him if you look him up on our site. We also have a, a, a recent piece by Dan Cohen about how um, Idlib became a haven for ISIS right under the watch of U.S. officials. Um, so definitely read that if you want to learn more. We'll link to that at the bottom of the segment on the, on the page. But finally, uh, this decision by Trump to uh, reverse in significant ways, his announced withdrawal from Syria, although it was never clear that that was going to be a full withdrawal. But now he says that he's keeping hundreds of U.S. troops in northern Syria to protect the oil. What do you make of that, Max? As I understand of those oil reserves there, they're not even that valuable, at least compared to the oil reserves that the U.S. has access to and controls elsewhere. So what is the thinking, if there is thinking, behind this decision? Well, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, during the uh, run-up to the invasion of Iraq, I remember seeing, you know, right-wing counter-protesters outside anti-war demonstrations ch chanting, uh, kick their ass, take their gas. And that's what Trump is doing. And actually, you know, if we go back to 2016 and listen to Trump's messaging about the war in Iraq, he did condemn it harshly and he condemned the Bush family. And, you know, he was the first major national politician to deliver the reckoning that Bush deserved. But at the same time, he also complained that the U.S. didn't get any oil from Iraq and that, you know, we our oil prices didn't actually go down or whatever financial windfall was supposed to come out of that invasion never took place. And uh, he seems to be, uh, you know, enacting that right now with the oil fields around Deir Ezzor in northeastern Syria. Um I, 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 I was certain that this would take place as soon as uh, Trump started withdrawing from al-Hasaka and these um, areas where, you know, Kurdish militias had been protecting uh, U.S. interests or serving as U.S. proxies, um, that there was no way that the U.S. was going to end the economic war against Syria uh, by removing all of its troops and allowing Syria to access its own oil fields. And these oil fields are very valuable to the Syrian government. Um, they're one of its major sources of revenue, and it's losing billions and billions of dollars of revenue every year as long as they have to buy oil from whoever is occupying them, the Kurdish militias or whoever. Um, this is, and it's so strange how it's being reported in U.S. media. This is Syrian territory. This is Syrian sovereign territory. So the way U.S. officials frame it is they, they, they first come up with this phony excuse. We want to prevent ISIS from taking back these oil fields. There's no way ISIS is going to take back these oil fields, let alone come back anytime in the future. Then they might say, we want to prevent, we, we, we can't let Assad take them. But it's not like it's just Assad. It's the UN recognized Syrian government. And so it's contributed to the economic misery of Syria, where 2019 was 
one of the worst economic years for Syria in history. And you could really feel it in Damascus and hear the complaints about having to buy back oil from what were considered Kurdish occupiers. Um, and now it's just a straight up US occupation in order to perpetuate one of the most brutal sanctions regimes um, that causes every year. I mean, you'll see uh, as the weather gets colder in Syria, you're probably going to see a repeat of last year where people didn't have heating oil for their homes and just had to go through the winter in extreme cold. Um, there's also, you know, increasing problems with, in the medical sector, um, you know, getting replacement parts for dialysis machines, treating cancer patients, uh, pediatric wards are suffering. Uh, the price of bread went up because uh, the U.S. had prevented, um, while it was maintaining control over these Kurdish areas, was preventing Kurdish farmers from selling wheat back to Damascus, um, even though Damascus was offering very favorable prices and subsidies. So this is just part of a, a gigantic economic war. And it's also part of the larger war, uh, sort of economic war on Iran, where the U.S. is trying to maintain some geopolitical foothold to interrupt uh, the strategic alliance between Iran and Syria. And of course, now we can, we can also look further west towards Lebanon, where there's obviously a clear effort that I don't quite understand, uh, but it's very clear that there's an effort to weaponize these protests to isolate Hezbollah and either force them out of government or to kind of expose them uh, within the government. We're going to leave it there. Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of several books, including his latest, The Management of Savagery. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Aaron.